And what you're about to listen to is a podcast I did on China's warlord era. Well, it was actually a documentary to be exact, found on my YouTube channel. But I know there are many of you who prefer listening in an audio form. China's warlord era is a very unknown part of history for Western audiences, and it was a hell of a time researching for me. Google Translation was a key ally. If you prefer to see it in its documentary form, go over to the Pacific War Channel on YouTube. But without further ado, this is China's Warlord Era. As we had seen with my previous episodes on the Xinhai Revolution, the series on World War One in Asia, and the May Fourth Movement of 1919, China certainly was undergoing one of its most tumultuous periods in its entire history. China was still undergoing what is called the Century of Humiliation. Ever since the Opium Wars and countless other external slights, the people of China were dissatisfied to say the least. Now the Qing Dynasty was overthrown during the Xinhai Revolution of 1911, ushering in the New Republic of China. But our old friend Yuan Shikai quickly wrestled control of the movement created by Dr. Sun Yat-sen and seized the presidency of the New Republic and would eventually elect himself emperor over the New Hongxian Dynasty. Now the last 20 years of the Qing Dynasty saw a steady decline towards decentralization and provincialism. Provincial military leaders, known as Tuochen, often backed by external players, exerted influence in their respective areas. Yuan Shikai's power came from his position as head of the Beiyang Army, the only major military force in China at the time. Thus, his Beiyang government was reliant upon military power rather than parliamentary methods. To maintain control, Yuan Shikai reorganized the provincial governments with military governors, Tuochen, each in control of their own private army. Yuan Shikai became the de facto father of warlords, and at least ten of these warlords that came to power later had originally served as officers within his Beiyang army. Then Yuan Shikai goes and dies, causing a power vacuum, and thus we have the warlord era. Thanks, Yuan Shikai. Hey everyone, I just wanted to let you know I now have a Patreon account found at www.patreon.com/thepacificwarchannel. Over there, you can find exclusive Patreon episodes and podcasts based on suggestions from patrons, and other benefits like early access to all of my content, live hangouts, your name in the end credits, and much, much more. So please go check it out. The Beiyang government henceforth basically served as to the whim of whichever warlord held the strongest army and largest presence within Beijing at any given time. Now leaderless, the Beiyang army broke apart. Its regiments and divisions fell under the control of various warlords in northern China, who claimed them for their own private armies. The warlords sought to increase their power by increasing the size of those said armies. This also resulted in the creation of major factions, better called cliques and alliances. Hey everyone, I just wanted to let you know I now have a Patreon account found at www.patreon.com/thepacificwarchannel. Over there, you can find exclusive Patreon episodes and podcasts based on suggestions from patrons, and other benefits like early access to all of my content, live hangouts, your name in the end credits, and much, much more. So please go check it out. Now, it is simply impossible to talk about all the warlords in every facet of the warlord era in this short three-part series. And as I just said that, I realized this is going to be about seven episodes long. So it's a seven-part series now. Nice. I will do my very best to give a general telling of this chaotic mess. So please forgive me for not listing every single leader at any given time, 'cause oh boy, they often change, and there's a lot of them. 
So first, we want to separate the Warlords into the Northern Factions and the Southern Factions. The major Northern Factions were the Anhui clique, led by Duan Cire, the Jili clique, led by Feng Guozhang in Central China, and the Fengtian clique, led by Zhang Zoulin in Manchuria. There were lesser ones, such as the Shanxi clique of Yan Xishan, the Ma clique of northwestern China, led by a multitude of Hui Muslim generals, the Xinjiang clique, led by Yang Zongxin, and the Guomingzun, formed later on in 1924 from some disgruntled Jili leaders. The major southern factions were the Kuomintang, led by Dr. Sun Yat-sen, who formed the Republican government in Guangzhou, the Chinese Communist Party, led by Chen Jixiu, the Yunnan clique, led by Cai Ginyin, the Guangxi clique, led by Li Zongren, and the Sichuan clique, led by Liao Sang. There were also other warlords of Guizhou, Guangdong, and Hunan. When Yuan Shikai died, his Beiyang army split more or less into three main factions, the Jili, Fengtian, and Anhui cliques. Their authority was based on their presence within Beijing. Li Yuanhong succeeded Yuan Shikai as president of the Republic of China, but the real political power was in the hands of Premier Duan Qirui. Basically Duan and others allowed Li Yuanhong to be president because he was seen to be weak and controllable. There'll be no knifing one another. Everybody knows who's in charge. Me. Right? Yes, you. Of course. Of course. Duan Xue was the previous minister of war under Yuan Xiukai and a strong believer in Confucian values. He earned a strong following known as the Anfu Club within the Republican Parliament and led the Anhui clique. The vice president, Feng Guozhang, had taken control of Gansu in 1916 and he was a former lieutenant under Yuan Shikai, playing a significant role in the 1911 revolution against the Manchu. He led the Jili clique, which initially was seeking stability in the capital by working with the Anhui clique. Now you must remember, all of this was going down right in the middle of World War I, forming a rather awkward situation. There was a large political unrest over the question if China should participate in the Great War or not. Duan called for a full declaration of war on Germany and Austro-Hungary, arguing it would allow China to be given a seat at the peace table, and hopefully she could recover the former German colonies and prevent Japan from seizing them. Dr. Sun Yat-sen and his supporters in the South opposed the plan, and this issue forced him to break off from the Beiyang government and form his own republican government in Guangzhou. Li Yuanhong likewise opposed the idea, because he feared Duan was going to use such a situation for personal gain. And lo and behold, Li found out Duan was forming secret dealings with Japan, so he fired him. The very angry Duan denounced it as illegal, and he left Beijing in protest to set up a base in Tianjin, taking most of his generals with him. Meanwhile in Beijing... Fuck you, I hate all of you! Because of the lack of military authority in Beijing, suddenly, General Zhang Xin offered his assistance to the situation, offering to mediate between Li and Duan. Zhang, however, was bringing with him a military backed by German funds and arms. Nicknamed the Pig-Tailed General because he refused to cut his Manchu queue, 
Zhang Xu was a devout Qing monarchist, and he showed up to Beijing with an army of 5,000 men on July the 1st. Zhang's men quickly occupied the capital, and he dissolved the parliament, leaving Li to flee for his life, first to the French legation, then to the Japanese embassy. Zhang then shocked the entire country by placing Puyi as emperor of a restored Qing dynasty. The Beijing police submitted to the new government, and for 48 hours, tons of edicts were being tossed around, trying to shore up a Manchu restoration. Meanwhile, Li reappointed Duan as premier and handed over his presidency to Feng Guozhang. As acting president, Feng begged Duan to bring his military to stop Jiang. Duan Xiede immediately took command of the Republican troops stationed in Tianjin on July the 5th, and they seized the Beijing-Tianjin Railway. General Zhang came out of Beijing to meet the Republicans, but by this point, most of the northern cliques and their private armies opposed him, and he had no control over the two main railway lines going to the capital. By the ninth day of the supposed Manchu Restoration, General Zhang resigned from his appointed positions as his forces were completely surrounded by the Republicans. Soon, the imperial court began to secretly negotiate with the Republicans to prevent an assault on Beijing. But by July the 12th, negotiations fell apart, and the Republicans announced a general assault. The attack began the next day, with Zhang's forces entrenched on the wall of the Temple of Heaven. Shortly after the fighting began, negotiations resumed, and General Zhang was forced to flee to the Dutch legation as his royalist forces called for a ceasefire. Zhang Xun would never participate in politics ever again. Yi Yuanhong was also fed up with politics, so he resigned from office on July the 17th, leaving Feng Guozhang to become the new president, and Duan Xie tried to pick up the pieces where he had left off in Beijing. Duan got his wish for China to enter World War I, declaring war on Germany and Austro-Hungary. By entering the war, Duan planned to use the war as a cover-up for building up his own private army under the guise it was to fight the Central Powers. <laughs> Yet the Beiyang government's credit was terrible, and the European wartime expenses made it both impossible to get Western funding. So, Duan secretly negotiated for funding with the Japanese. This infamously became known as the Nishihara Loans. In exchange for the right for Japanese troops to be stationed in Shandong province and to build up railways there, Duan Xie would receive funding to help build up his private Anhui military clique's army to conquer the other warlords controlling the south. Then, to the shock of Zhuan and all of China, at the Paris Peace Conference, the Allies gave Japan the former German colonies. China was humiliated at Paris, leading to the May 4th movement in 1919 in response to the anger towards a weak Beiyang government. To add insult to injury, the Japanese made the Nishihara loans public, completely destroying Zhuan's credibility. Nonetheless, Duan still exercised significant control over Beijing with his powerful army, and he still sought to use his army to hit the warlords in the south. However, Duan's Jili clique allies were continuously hindering his plans at a southern campaign. On top of this, because of the public sentiment towards Duan was so poor, the Jili clique and Feng Tian clique began to slowly organize an anti-Anwei alliance to oppose Duan. By 1919, the Anhui clique was the strongest by far and controlled much of coastal China and the area around Beijing. Through the Nishihara loans, Duan was receiving funds, weapons, and military advisors from Japan. 
The Jili clique was receiving the same from Italy, and the Fengtian clique were also receiving the same from Japan. Publicly, the Anhui clique's ally was still the Jili clique, though its leaders continuously argued against a southern campaign, preferring instead a peaceful solution. President Feng Guozhang would die of illness on December the 12th of 1919, and the Jili clique would then be led by Tao Kun, who was backed up by an amazing military strategist named Wu Peifu. Like his predecessor, Cao Quan also favored a more peaceful solution, seeking to sway rival warlords to their side with financial and political support. Now, as World War I had been coming to an end, Duan had lost his credible reason to continue building up his Anhui military, and he had to find a new rationale to maintain it. He saw that Mongolia was currently without a foreign protector, so he sent his army to occupy parts of Outer Mongolia. No, 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 wait, 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 wait. It fit two major purposes. The first, it would allow him to rationalize having his own private army. The second, perhaps he could regain favor with the public after the disastrous leak of the Nishihara Agreement. Zhuan's right-hand man, General Xu Shuzhang, commanded the Northwestern Frontier Army and personally led a spearhead of 4,000 troops right into Outer Mongolia, capturing Erga without any resistance. Soon, an Anhui army of 10,000 began to occupy the rest of the country, and their success was met with much acclaim throughout all of China, even amongst other warlords. However, one warlord was very unhappy about all of this. He was the leader of the Fengtian clique, the powerful warlord of Manchuria, Zhang Zoulin. He viewed such a large Anhui army close to his territory as a threat. Zhang, known as the Tiger of the North, was a former bandit who had fought his way to power in Manchuria and Chengdong province by splitting melons, which was his jolly euphemism for smashing his opponent's heads. Zhang and his bandit gang helped the IGA during the Boxer Rebellion and during the Russo-Japanese War, when they were employed by the IGA as mercenaries. The Japanese saw Zhang as a useful warlord to further their aims in Manchuria, so they helped build up his private army. Now alongside Zhang, the dominant leaders of the Jili clique, Cao Quan and Wu Peifu, were both calling for a dissolution of the Anhui's giant military. The Fengtian and Jili cliques soon formed an alliance and had General Xu Zhang dismissed. You've done a hell of a lousy job. You're late. I'm sorry. You're fired. Get out of here. This caused Duan to lose face, and he was not going to sit by idly. In fact, Zhuan made his first move by expressing his intentions to use the Anhui army against the Qigi army. Zhuan formed the National Stabilization Army using five divisions and four combined brigades. He deployed his forces in two fronts, the west covering the regions of Zhaozhou, Guan, and Laishu, and over in the east covering Hamlet, Beijingmiao, Yang and Liang. The Jili gathered their 3rd Division and 9 Combined Brigades to form a Traitor Suppression Army, with Wu Peifu as their frontline commander. The Jili and their allies deployed two fronts similar to Zhuan, with an eastern front in the region of Yang and Hamlet, and a western front in the region of Gaobei. The Jili war plan was to strike from the south, converging on Baoding, and then to hit Beijing. 
Meanwhile, the Fengtian gathered over 70,000 troops and they would strike into the northern Anhui-held territories through the Shanghai Pass of the Great Wall. Now, a crucial problem for the Anhui clique would be the fact that the Jili held control over Jiangsu province, which held an important railway that Anhui's army needed to move troops from north to south. On July the 14th of 1920, the Anhui army made the first move by simultaneously attacking both fronts. Jili troops were forced to abandon Gaobei, and two days later, with Japanese assistance, the Anhui forces seized Yang and Hamlet, forcing the Jili to form a second line of defense in the Beitang region. It was at Beitang, the Anhui forces were finally halted. On July the 17th, Wu Peifu personally took command of the Jili Western Front, performing a daring maneuver. He outflanked the Anhui force at Jojo and proceeded to take the Western Anhui Army HQ. While this was going on, Wu Peifu's men managed to capture the Anhui frontline commander, Chi Tongfeng, alongside other top-ranking officers. Wu Peifu then seized Jojo, sending the Anhui fleeing back to Beijing. With the exception of the Anhui 15th Division, their western front was all but annihilated. On July the 17th, the Fengtian army crashed into the Anhui Eastern Front, and upon hearing the news of the collapse of the Western Front, the Anhui Eastern Front commander, General Xu Shuzheng, fled to Langfang and then Baijing, leaving his troops to surrender to the combined might of the Fengtian and Juli cliques. By July the 19th, Zuan finally realized he had lost and resigned from his post as the combined Juli Fengtian forces entered Beijing by the 23rd. It was only a week-long battle with an unexpected victory. Most of the defeated Anhui army defected to the Fengtian clique as they snatched up Anhui's former northern provinces. Meanwhile, the Juli snatched up more of China's central provinces as Anhui held just a sliver of the coast now. But for all intensive purposes, the Anhui clique was all but done for. Wu Peifu was the mastermind strategist behind the Juli victory, and alongside their Fengtian allies, they were now able to form a joint government. However, their victory did not bring stability. In truth, the only thing that brought the Juli and Fengtian cliques together was their war against the Anhui. Although the Fengtian clique played a minor role in assisting the Juli clique during the war, they were given equal share of power in the new Beiyang government. Xin Yunpeng became premier because he had ties to both cliques. In the summer of 1921, President Xu Xichang called for elections, but because only 11 provinces took part, the elections became invalid and no assembly was convened. Now during this time, Jiang Zoulian was worried about Wu Peifu's growing military strength. After all, he was the military mastermind behind many campaigns. Wu Peifu also held strong anti-Japanese sentiment, which threatened Zhang's positions amongst his Japanese allies. Using a financial crisis as a pretext, Zhang removed Xin Yunpeng and appointed Yang Xiyi as premier in December of 1921. Wu Peifu and the Jili leadership were outraged that Fang Tian appointed a new premier without even consulting them prior. Yang Xiyi's cabinet then granted amnesty to six former cabinet members of the Anhui clique and refused to give $3 million in military budget to the Jili clique, even though it had been promised to them prior. Wu Peifu and the Jili leaders forced Yang to resign after a month, on the grounds of him being too pro-Japanese. Wu Peifu managed to do this by exposing a telegram Liang received from the Japanese demanding his government back Japan on the Shandong problem during the Washington Naval Conference. Then Jiang Zulin pulled a rather shocking maneuver by forming an alliance with 
Zhuan Qirei and Dr. Sun Yat-sen. Soon the leaders began telegramming their military officers while denouncing Julie's clique. At this point, the Julie clique was receiving aid from Britain and France while the Feng Tian were being backed by Japan. Now Jiang Zhou-lin boasted a military edge because of his Japanese allies, but Wu Pai-fu was also using that said support to accuse him publicly of being nothing more than a stooge for Japan. And thus, Jiang Zhou-lin had been preparing for a conflict with Wu Pai-fu for quite some time. He had increased his private army to around 120,000 men, and he held around 150 field artillery pieces and 200 machine guns, a formidable force. Wu Pai-fu had on paper 250,000 men, but many of these men had been absorbed from the recently defeated Anwei army, and they were not necessarily trustworthy. In reality, he could rely on about 100,000 troops, and he had around 100 field artillery pieces and around 100 machine guns. Jiang Zolin in March formed an agreement with Dr. Sun Yat-sen to coordinate an attack on the Julie from his south and Jiang's north. Remnants of the Anhui army, many still loyal to Zhuang Qirei, would help bolster their anti-Julie coalition. The strategy of the Fangxian army was similar to what was done during the Jili-Anhui war. They would attack the Julie on two fronts. The eastern front would be led personally by Jiang Zolin, with his headquarters being located at Junlianchang. Zhang's deputy commander in the east would be Sun Li Chen. Zhang Jinghui would lead the western front, which was divided into three echelons. Zhang Jinghui's headquarters were located in Changxinjian, and his three echelon commanders were Bao Dexin, Zhang Xiliang, and Li Jinglin. The western group was tasked with attacking Zhu Li's headquarters in Baoting. The Zhu Li deployed their forces on three fronts. Wu Peifu headed the 3rd Division, taking command of the Western Front with his headquarters in the region of Liao Luihe. Wang Chengbin headed the 23rd Division at Guan and was the Commander-in-Chief of the Eastern Front alongside Zhang Gorong, who was heading the 26th Division stationed at Dacheng. Last was the Deputy Commander-in-Chief, Zhang Fulai, who was heading the 24th Division. On April the 10th of 1922, the Fengtian troops deployed and the war would break out on April the 29th. The Jili army on the Eastern Front was immediately driven back as far as Renxiu and Hetian, and their Western forces were unable to make any progress because of the heavy Fengtian artillery. The next day, Wu Peifu personally went to the front line and ordered a heavy artillery counterattack on the Fengtian Western Front. While his artillery smashed the Fengtian lines, he had his main force outflank their rear and by May the 4th launched a surprise attack devastating the enemy so much the Fengtian 16th Division defected to Wu Peifu. As was common during the Warlord era, the 16th Division happened to be composed of many ex-Julie troops led by Feng Guoqiang, easing their quick defection. The Fengtian were in disarray in the west and their 1st Division was forced to retreat from Feng Tai leading to the collapse of their western defensive lines. The 1st Division eventually managed to counterattack and recaptured Changxinjian. The counterattack soon fell apart, however, as Wu Peifu decided to change his tactics. He ordered the men to fake a retreat and lured the Fengtian forces into an ambush. Soon the Fengtian troops overstretched themselves, allowing the Jidi forces to encircle and annihilate them. With the Western Front successfully defeated, the Western Jidi army turned its attention to the Eastern Front. Over in the Eastern Front, the Fengtian forces were doing better than their Western comrades. Initially, the Fengtian forces were battering the Jili front lines, forcing them into desperate rearguard actions. However, when reports came about the deteriorating situation on the Western Front, 
Bao Dushen's Echon refused to continue the attack and began to leave his left flank dangerously exposed. Chang Zulin saw the dangerous situation and ordered a general retreat of the eastern forces to avoid total annihilation. Jiang Chuliang was leading the strongest echelon and thus became the first victim of the Jili onslaught. Having defeated the western Fangxian forces, Wu Peifu redeployed his best forces, the 26th and 2nd divisions, and personally led them to attack Jiang Chuliang. Jiang Chuliang was able to repulse the attack, but he was forced to make a fighting withdrawal. Li Qingling's echelon was successful at beating back the Jili attacks around the Yama crossing and even managed to capture 1,000 enemy troops. Yet, like the other forces, word of the western collapse was met with a collapse of morale. Soon the Jili forces began battering Li Qingling's men and seized their headquarters in the Machang Horse Factory. There they captured over 7,000 Fengxian soldiers, forcing the rest to flee. Li Qingling and the survivors retreated to a warehouse in Beitang. They began to plan a defense at Jinliangcheng, but were attacked by 20,000 Jili reinforcements who had just arrived by train. The Fengtian survivors all fled to Luanzhou. It was obvious the Fengtian had lost the war, and on May the 5th, Wang Chengbin's 23rd division marched into Tianjin. The Fengtian saw 20,000 deaths, 40,000 captured, and 10,000 desertions. By this time, British missionaries had convinced the Jili that the British consul at Luanzhou could broker a peace with the Fengtian. The consul suggested a general outline to Zhang Zoulin, whereby he would agree to withdraw all of his forces from the region inside Shanghai Guan, and the Jili forces would agree for a ceasefire. By June the 18th, a peace agreement was signed aboard a British warship anchored near Qinhuangdao. Thus, Shanghai Guan became a border area for the two cliques, and the Fengtian retreated further into Manchuria, leaving Beijing in the hands of Wu Peifu and the rest of the Jili leaders. Look at little Goblin Jr. Zhang Zulin's image as a national leader was destroyed, and this caused him to declare Manchuria independent from Beijing in late May of 1922. After such a horrible military defeat, Zhang reorganized the Fengtian army. He started a new training program, bought new equipment like mobile radios and more machine guns. The Fengtian army was now concentrating on upgrading logistics and military reform. Zhang purchased FT tanks, began producing 150 artillery pieces, 1,000 machine guns, 100,000 artillery rounds, 600,000 rifles, and refurbished another 60,000 rifles annually. He created an air force and a navy, naming his son, Jiang Xiliang, director of the aviation office, and he purchased 300 aircraft from Germany, Italy, and Japan, forming four groups. A rather ironic choice. He created water and coal supply stations in Suizhou, Daiyago, and Xincheng for rapid deployment of troops by railway alongside building up said railways. He improved his radio communications by building stations in Shenyang, Xin Country, and Harbin. The Fengtian army expanded to 27 brigades, organized into three armies and three divisions with his best troops being the 2nd Brigade commanded by Jiang Xiliang. The Fengtian clique lost the war against the Jili clique, leaving the Jade Marshal, Wu Peifu, reigning supreme in Beijing. The warlord of Manchuria, Jiang Zoulin's image as a national leader was all but destroyed and this caused him to declare Manchuria independent from Beijing in late May of 1922. My disappointment is immeasurable, and my day is ruined. 
After such a horrible military defeat, Zhang reorganized the Fengtian army. He began first by replacing most of his bandit leaders with Japanese-trained Chinese officers. He started a new training program, bought new equipment, like mobile radios and more machine guns. The Fengtian army was now concentrating on upgrading logistics and military reform. Zhang purchased FT tanks, began to produce 150 artillery pieces, 1,000 machine guns, 100,000 artillery rounds, 600,000 rifles, and refurbished 60,000 rifles annually. He created a navy and an air force, naming his son Jiang Xuliang director of the aviation office and purchased 300 aircraft from Germany, Italy, and Japan, forming four groups. Sort of funny how he chose to purchase from what would be the future Axis. He created water and coal supply stations in Suizhong, Daiyaogou, and Xincheng for rapid deployment of troops by railway alongside building up said railways. He improved his radio communications by building up stations in Shenyang, Xinkanji, and Harbin. The Fengtian army expanded to 27 brigades, organized into three armies and three divisions with his best troops being the 2nd Brigade commanded by Jiang Xuliang. By late 1923, the Fengtian army could now boast 200,000 combat-ready troops. Now after driving the Fengtian into Manchuria, the Juli clique sought to establish their dominance over the capital and attempt to reunify China. They began by getting rid of Xu Xiecheng, and they appointed Li Yuanhong back to the presidency and restored the National Assembly. They also demanded Dr. Sun Yat-sen give up his rival presidency over the self-proclaimed military government in the south. Dr. Sun Yat-sen had become the generalissimo of a military government in Guangzhou, with the purpose of protecting the constitution of 1912. The southern warlords assisted his regime in various ways solely to legitimize their own territories and private armies. During the end half of World War I, the southern warlords thought Sun Yat-sen was becoming too powerful and they forced him into a self-imposed exile. Sun Yat-sen would resurrect the Kuomintang on October the 10th of 1919 in the French Shanghai Concession, this time calling it the Chungkuo Kuomintang, the Nationalist Party of China. At this point, Sun Yat-sen was convinced the only hope for a unified China lay in military conquest from his base in the south. He continuously called for a northern expedition to expel the warlords and sought international recognition for the KMT. Sun Yat-sen also sought to develop the one thing all the other warlords lacked, an ideology. By instilling a nationalist revolutionary fervor, he hoped to achieve his envisioned northern expedition by winning the hearts of his countrymen. Now by 1924, the southern provinces were not nearly as strong as the northern ones. The KMT's NRA held 100,000 troops, 65,000 rifles, of which 20,000 were obsolete. The KMT had to rely on its neighboring warlords such as the Yunnan clique and the Guangxi clique. Sun Yat-sen went to the United States, Europe, and Japan seeking funds and military assistance, but to no avail. Sun Yat-sen was eager for arms and expertise, so he accepted help from another group, the Chinese Communist Party. By adding the CCP as an ally, this opened the door to receive arms and expertise from the Soviet Union. In exchange for Soviet arms and advisors, the KMT and CCP would later cooperate in an uneasy alliance known as the First United Front. Now going back to the Julie-dominated northern government, they asked Sun Yat-sen to step down and he offered them strict stipulations that the Julie simply could not accept. So the Julie targeted the KMT general, Chen Xiangming, 
who they officially recognized as the governor of Guangdong. Chen led a mutiny against the KMT and attacked Sun Yat-sen's residence and office, forcing him to flee to Guangzhou. During all of this, a conflict was brewing over the control of Shanghai, China's most prosperous port city. It was technically controlled by the Zhuli general, Xie Yuan, but here is where it gets a bit messy. Shanghai was historically and legally part of Xiangsu province, but was actually being administered by the Anhui clique, governor of Zhejiang province, Liu Yongxiang. Liu Yongxiang was also constantly making anti-Juli actions within the Beiyang parliament. War had almost come between Xiangsu Zhejiang in November of 1923, but Wu Paifu managed to calm things down in order to keep the peace, and thus Tse and Liu were forced to negotiate leading Shanghai into a bilateral non-aggression treaty over Hubei, Anhui, and Jiangxi. It seemed to all be for naught, however, as on September the 3rd of 1924, Xi Xiaoyuan went to war with Liu Yongxiang. Wu Paifu backed Xi to overthrow Liu, and the result was the Jiangsu Zhejiang War. Intense fighting took place in areas of western Shanghai, especially in the towns of Hongdu, Nanxiang, and Anxing. At least 4,000 people died, thousands of homes were destroyed, and 100,000 civilians were displaced. Ultimately, Xi's forces, with some help from the Jili clique, Fujian governor, Sun Quanfang, defeated Lu after 40 days of battle. However, the Jiangsu-Zhejiang War would spark an even larger war. When Zhejiang refused to cede administration of Shanghai to Xi Xiaoyuan, both Jiang Zolin and Dr. Sun Yat-sen pledged to defend the neutrality of Zhejiang and ended up pulling everyone into a conflict. Jiang Zolin sent the famous dog meat general, Jiang Zhouchang, south to aid Yongxiang, which prompted Sun Quanfang and Xi Xiaoyuan to send an army to stop them. I bet you were probably wondering about the title dog meat general, and there are actually quite a few plausible reasons for this title. Number one, it was his favorite brand of tonic. Number two, he was addicted to a gambler's game called Paizhu, known as eating dog meat. And then, of course, number three, he reportedly ate a meal of black chow chow every day as he believed it boosted a man's vitality. And speaking about a man's vitality, Zhang Zhouchang loved to boast about his penis size, which became a local legend. He was a very well-known womanizer, allegedly having up to possible 50 concubines. And if it's to be believed, he gave them a number because he could not remember all of their names, nor speak their various languages. Although he was only semi-literate, Jiang Zhouchang was known for writing. Well, at least for one very famous piece of poetry. The famous poem about bastards. Now, please excuse the language, but I think everyone should hear this fine piece of literature. You tell me to do this. He tells me to do that. You're all bastards. Go fuck your mother. Poems about bastards by Jiang Zhouchang. Yes, he was an absolute legend, and to this day, he's kind of a meme. Putting aside all of that, he was a very respected military commander. He had proven himself effective at using armored trains and worked well with white Russians, speaking the language also. He recruited thousands of white Russian refugees after the Russian Civil War and even had a Cossack bodyguard. He learned much from the Russian military and was one of the first Chinese generals to incorporate women in his army including white Russian women in nurse regiments. Eager for vengeance, 
Jiang Zoulin declared war on the Julie clique on September the 13th and had all the trains of the Beijing Fengtian Railway stopped. The Fengtian mobilized 250,000 men, and the Julie had around 200,000. The Fengtian war plan was to create two major war fronts, the Shanghai Guan Front and the Ruhe Front. To capture Shanghai Guan, the Fengtian would need to seize the entire Xizhaling region. Jiang Zoulin deployed the 1st and 2nd Army for this task, and if necessary, two more brigades to take Tianzhou and its railway in order to deploy more troops at Suizhou County to hit Shanghai Guan. Once Shanghai Guan was taken, it would be used as a launching pad to assault Tianjin and Baijing. Next, the 2nd Army would march into Ruhe and seize Chaoyang, Chengde, and Tianping before taking their ultimate target, Lingyuan. This task would be mostly up to Jiang Zouchang's 3rd Combined Brigade and the 1st Division. After this was accomplished, if Shanghai Guan was still not captured, they would assist by coming through the Lengkao Pass and attack Yuanzhou. Jiang Zoulin would deploy a Fangtian cavalry group to attack Qifeng in Ruhe and act as a flank cover for the other units. Finally, Jiang Zoulin would hold the 4th and 5th armies in reserve between Xincheng and Zhejiang to guard Xinzhou. Jiang Zoulin would have the support of Dr. Sun Yat-sen's NRA in Guangdong and Liu Yongxiang in Zhejiang. Another crucial attack would come from within the Julie clique. General Feng Yuxiang had recently been demoted by Wu Peifu and forced to guard the southern suburbs of Beijing. By 1923, he became enthralled by the KMT agreeing to overthrow Wu Peifu and Zhao Kun. When the war broke out, General Feng Yuxiang was given the task of defending Ruhe against the Feng Tian, and that was a fatal mistake for Wu Peifu. Jiang Zoulian positioned his forces on the borders of Manchuria as Wu Peifu divided his military into three armies. On September the 15th, the 1st and 3rd Fang Tian armies struck Ruhe and Shanghai Guan before regrouping in Suizhong and approaching the Zhuili lines east of Yuguan. Between September the 18th to the 28th, the opposing armies clashed and the battles intensified dramatically, culminating in a stalemate in the Shanghai Guan front. The Juli took up a defensive line and tossed back continuous Fang Tian assaults on Shanghai Guan. Meanwhile, Dr. Sun Yat-sen personally led his forces north, blocking Sun Quanfang's forces from reinforcing their Juli allies in the north. However, a rebellion broke out in Guangzhou, led by Qianxiong Ming loyalists, forcing Sun Yat-sen to turn back to quell the rebellion. Thus, Sun Quanfang's armies were left free to attack Zhejiang and seize Shanghai. While the Shanghai area was in a stalemate, the Fengxian 2nd Army was making steady progress in the Ruhe front. The Fengxian 2nd Army vanguards had gone as far as Chaoyang and were attacking Lingyuan by September the 22nd. Meanwhile, the Fengxian cavalry captured Fuxing, Tianping, Jiangwu, and Qifeng by October the 7th. Two days later, the regions adjacent to Qifeng were secure, and Jiang Zoulin was able to toss his reserves into the fight. The situation became so dire for the Zhuili, Wu Peifu personally went to Shanghai Guan to try and break the Fengxian siege. Unbeknownst to Wu Peifu, Feng Yuxiang, commanding his third army, had signed a secret treaty with Jiang Zoulin and Zhuan Xiye to plot a coup in Beijing against him and Cao Kun. Jiang Zoulin even sent 1.5 million yen via the Japanese to bribe Feng to topple the government. When the second Zhuyi army, led by Wang Huaixing, pleaded for assistance, Feng refused to help and instead kept his forces in the Gubei Cao Pass. Go, go. I got you. I got you, brother. 
Oh, oh no, no, you don't. Oh, what are you doing? Ow. Stop. The stalemate at the Shanghai Guan front formed into two major sectors, the Tiaomenkao sector and the Shanghai Guan sector. The 1st and 3rd Fengtian armies were facing elite Judi troops at the Shanghai Guan sector, making no progress as the Judi enjoyed a geographical advantage. Then on October the 7th, the Fengtian forces broke into the defensive lines in the Tiaomenkao sector. The 10th Combined Brigade, led by Sun Qijiang, achieved an extraordinary victory over the Juli 13th Combined Brigade, led by Feng Yurong, whom committed suicide as a result. The Fengtian 10th Combined Brigade pressed their attack until they had captured the heights near Ximenjai and threatened the Juli's left flanks rear. The Juli 14th Division, led by Xin Yunpeng, spearheaded a counterattack on October the 12th. Wu Peifu again personally went to Yuguan to take charge of the front lines and began redeploying reinforcements. While Wu Peifu reinforced the lines with Julie units from Shanxi and Hunan, led by Zhang Fulai, the Fengxian likewise reinforced their lines with three combined brigades. Commander Jian Zongxuan and Deputy Commander Han Yichuan of the 1st Fengxian Army went to the front line to command personally. Despite the additional forces, the Fengtian defensive lines were beginning to break and the casualties were mounting high, especially at Huichu Yao, where the Fengtian commander, An Luan, was killed. Meanwhile, after two more days, the Fengtian forces at Shanghai Guan were still making no progress. Then the Fengtian forces received an unconfirmed intelligence report from their Japanese allies indicating the Zhu Li forces had enlisted the help of 13 ships of the Zhongzi Shipping Company to transport three to four divisions behind the Fengtian forces' lines via the Daku forts. This led many of the Fengtian commanders to argue they should deploy reserve units as a rearguard, but the deputy chief of the Fengtian general staff, Fu Xingpei, opposed the idea claiming the urgent situation at the front lines would not allow such a division of forces, and that the reserves were needed at the Zhoumenkao sector. In the end, Cheng Zoulian ordered the bulk of the reserves, led by Zhang Suoxing, to hit the Tiaomenkao sector to force a decisive victory. Even with the reserve units, the Fengtian forces were still unable to break the Juli lines. Jiang Xuliang and Guo Songling then decided to secretly move eight infantry regiments and two artillery brigades from the Shanghaiwan sector to the Tiaomenkao sector under the cover of night. Guo Songling led the force personally into the conflict when disaster struck. It turns out one of the artillery commanders, Yan Songzhou, a classmate of Guo Songling, had been removed from command by Jiang Dongxuan and Han Yichuan, who replaced him with Chen Chen. Yuan Songzhou complained to Guo Songling, who went and removed Chen Chen and gave the job back to Yuan. This embarrassed Jiang Dongxuan and Han Yichuan, who complained to Jiang Zoulin. Thus, Jiang Zoulin ordered both Yan Zhongzhou and Chen Chen to go back to the original commands, which really pissed off and insulted Guo Zhongling, whom promptly took the 8th Infantry Regiment out of the battlefield and retreated to the rear. Oh, well, you know what I say? Screw you guys, I'm going home. You dick! Later! Some real kindergarten sort of stuff here. The gap caused by Guo's drama queen moment could have lost the war for the Fangtian. Fortunately, the Juli forces did not see the gap and failed to exploit it. Jiang Xuliang was forced to hunt down a new commander to continue the plan, and thus, Sun Xuchang's 10th Fengtian Brigade was able to seize the Nine Gates and rout the Juli forces at Shanghaiwan. Over in Ruehe, the 2nd Fengtian Army had succeeded in taking Yingyuan, 
and Pingchuan by late September. Jiang Suoqiang began to attack the Langkau Pass as the Juli tossed four divisions at him. However, two of the divisions had formed a secret pact with Feng Yixiang and did nothing to thwart Jiang Suoqiang's offensive. To add insult to injury, two Juli units were being led by bitter rival officers who refused to fight at the offset, trying to get the other's unit to go in first and die. Thus, when the Feng Xian attacked, the Juli simply routed at Langkau. Seizing the momentum, Zhang Zhuoqiang pushed deeper into the enemy territory, taking a massive risk because he heard reports that the Jiangsu Zhejiang War had ended in a Juli victory and knew Sichuan Feng would soon bring his forces to hit the north. Then on October the 22nd, Feng Yuxiang, commanding the 3rd Jili Army, seized control of key government institutions in Beijing and placed President Cao Kun under house arrest. Wu Pai Fu at the front lines of Shanghai Guan was outraged and forced to pull back many of his forces to rescue Beijing. 8,000 Jili troops from the 3rd and 26th divisions were withdrawn, leaving only 4,000 men along part of the defensive line by October the 26th. Finally, seeing a chance for victory, Jiang Zhoulin tossed everything he had. Meanwhile, Li Jingli and Jiang Zhuoqiang kept up the pressure, leading their forces to attack Luanzhou. By October the 18th, Jiang Zhuoqiang seized Luanzhou and its crucial train station, while Sun Xuqiang's 10th Brigade finally managed to seize Jiumenkao. The Fengxian cavalry forces took the Xifangkao Pass, and the Juli forces' morale was all but broken by the losses and the news of a coup occurring in Beijing. Even the crybaby, Guo Songling, saw a massive opportunity and came with an all-out charge into the Juli lines taking vast territory. The Juli forces were soon surrounded around Shanghai Guan and Qinghangdao by October the 31st, leading 40,000 of them to surrender. Wu Paifu withdrew the Tianjin, trying to rally the troops, but it was to no avail as warlords from all over seized the opportunity to take territory from the Juli clique and closed off major railway stations all over China to them. The Anhui clique's warlord of Shandong, Zheng Shiqi, then suddenly entered the fray, seizing Ma Chang and Tangzhou before closing down the Xinpu Railway at Hanzhuang. The Fengtian forces took Xi Jiazhong, Tangshan, and Li Tao as Feng Yuxiang seized Yangchun and Beitang. Without the railways, Wu Peifu could not receive reinforcements from the interior, and he was forced to relocate his HQ to Zhuliangcheng. And at this time, Zhuan Qirei wrote to Wu Peifu advising him simply to leave by sea. Wu Peifu was gradually being surrounded, and he had no choice but to try and escape. Wu Paifu, with 2,000 of his forces, boarded a military transport at 11 a.m. on November the 3rd, and he fled to a stronghold in Henan Hubai, where Sun Chuanfang was able to protect him. The fighting would continue until 1925, but the Juli had almost certainly lost the war. The Fengxian and Anhui forces performed an expedition into Jiangsu and Shanghai in January of 1925. Sun Chuanfeng launched a counteroffensive against the expedition, driving Jiang Zhuoqiang's army out of Zhejiang. As a means to keep the peace, Zhuan Xie gave Jiang Zhuoqiang the last Anhui-held province, Shandong. Over 20 to 30,000 casualties were dished out, and the Beiyang government was bankrupt. Though the Juli clique was certainly shattered, it still remained in central China, with Wu Fu controlling it. The Juli clique had been decimated by the Fengtian clique, led by Zhang Zhoulin. The remnants of the Anhui clique, led by Zhuan Xire, and the betrayal of Feng Yuxiang. As the Juli clique regressed into central China, 
The victors began to dish out the spoils of war. Jiang Zoulin grabbed the former Juli-held territories in northeastern China, while Feng Yixiang took the much poorer territories in China's northwest. Jiang Zoulin was the obvious supreme victor of the second Jili-Fangtian War, and he earned the majority share of influence over Beijing. Feng Yuxian was a devout Christian and a man who dabbled in much more radical politics. Just the sort of revolutionary politics that would garner Soviet support. The USSR took a direct interest in Feng Yuxian immediately after the war, and from that point onwards would advise and financially aid him. The USSR also saw Feng Yuxiang as a very useful tool against the pro-Japanese warlord of Manchuria, Zhang Zhoulin. It was in their best interest to keep Feng Yuxiang well supported in case they might finally be able to rid themselves of the Japanese stranglehold on Manchuria that had begun as far back as the Russo-Japanese War of 1904-1905. With Soviet arms and advisors, Feng Yuxiang was able to become a full-fledged warlord, whereupon he named his private army the Guomingjin, National People's Army. Now Zhang Zoulin did something quite surprising to all. He named Duan Xire as the new chief executive of the nation on November the 24th of 1924. Duan Xire had no army anymore, and he was considered a neutral choice. Even the Judy clique begrudgingly accepted the choice. Now Zhang Zoulin made him chief executive and not president. This was implicitly done to showcase that his position was temporary and quite weak. One of the first things Duan did was call upon Dr. Sun Yat-sen and the KMT government to come over and negotiate a possible reunification. Dr. Sun Yat-sen had a lot of demands for such a thing, such as getting rid of the unequal treaties with foreign nations, and that a new national assembly needed to be formed. Duan knew he could not grant such things, but he promised at least that a new assembly would be formed within three months. Sun Yat-sen was beginning to warm up to this, and he said he would come over. Everything was finally starting to look hopeful for China. And then disaster struck yet again. Dr. Sun Yat-sen died of cancer. With the death of Sun Yat-sen, Zhuan Xide's provincial government basically became an informal triumvirate between Zhang Zoulin Feng Yuxiang, and to a lesser extent, there was also the Julie clique. Duan knew immediately Feng and Zhang did not get along, and their backers, the USSR and Japan, also very much did not get along. Thus, Duan began secretly playing each other against another. But what do we have left once we abandon the lie? Chaos. A gaping pit waiting to swallow us all. Chaos isn't a pit. Chaos is a ladder. Feng approached the Fengtian clique commander, Guo Sangling. Remember the crybaby during the last war? Oh, well, you know what I say? Screw you guys. I'm going home. You get later. Well, Guo felt underappreciated within the Fengtian military, and Feng got him to secretly defect over to the Guomingjin. Feng was able to do this by forming a plot against Zhang Zoulin. They were going to overthrow the warlord and install his much more liberal-minded son, Jiang Xiliang, upon the Manchurian throne. Unbeknownst to Feng Yuxiang, Jiang Zoulin was quite fed up with his activities and he began to secretly negotiate an alliance with, of all people, Wu Peifu. Wu Peifu understandably hated Feng Yuxiang after the man betrayed the Julie clique and performed a Beijing coup. 
so he readily accepted an alliance with Zhang Zhou-lin. To continue this Game of Thrones-style story, there was also major events unfolding in the Kuomintang government. The KMT held its governmental base in Guangzhou, and Dr. Sun Yat-sen had been planning a northern expedition to reunify China for a very long time. To be able to do this, the KMT was forced to ally itself with the CCP, forming what is known as the First United Front. The major reason the KMT did this was to receive Soviet military support. During the military buildup for the Nationalist Revolutionary Army, Chiang Kai-shek emerged as Sun's protege by 1922. Chiang Kai-shek was given command of the Wampoa Military Academy and by 1924 was one of the best contenders to take over after Dr. Sun Yat-sen. The CCP in the meantime sporadically would form revolts in protests such as the Canton-Hong Kong strike. The CCP activity and that of the left-wingers within the KMT worried the KMT leadership that they would hurt their ability to raise funds from foreign nations. One of the leaders most worried about the CCP's influence was, of course, Chiang Kai-shek, who sought to complete Dr. Sun Yat-sen's northern expedition dream. However, Chiang Kai-shek also knew they could not hope to defeat the northern warlords without Soviet backing. So, he held back from attacking the communists, for now. Jim is my enemy, but it turns out that Jim is also his own worst enemy. And the enemy of my enemy is my friend. So Jim is actually my friend. The Soviets did not believe the CCP was strong enough to go it alone, so they advised the CCP to wait and grow its membership. By the early 1920s, the KMT had over 50,000 members, whereupon the CCP had only just a few hundred. So the first united front was mutually beneficial for now. Now as you can imagine, another key player who has emerged to this Game of Thrones scene was of course Chiang Kai-shek. After Dr. Sun Yat-sen's death, there was a power vacuum within the Kuomintang, and a competition between Chiang Kai-shek, Wang Jingwei, Liao Zhongkai, and Hu Hanmin. Liao Zhongkai ended up getting assassinated just before a KMT executive committee meeting on August the 20th of 1925 in Guangzhou. Five gunmen shot him using Mauser C-96s as he was stepping out of a limousine. Suspicion immediately fell upon Hu Hanmin, who was arrested as a result. This left Wang Qingwei and Chiang Kai-shek eyeing another for the coveted seat of leadership over the KMT. Unlike Chiang Kai-shek, Wang continuously called for cooperation with the CCP and was much more left-leaning. When Sun Yat-sen died, it was believed by many that it was Wang Qingwei who drafted his will. He was also considered one of the main contenders to replace Sun Yat-sen as leader of the KMT. Now the KMT were quite divided between the right-wing Chiang Kai-shek and the left-wing Wang Qingwei. But with the support of the Soviets and the CCP, Wang Qingwei looked like he was going to emerge victorious. That was until a major incident occurred. The coastal ship SS Zhongshan, the KMT's best warship, was captained by a communist named Li Jilong. Working alongside Soviet naval advisors, he moved the warship to Guangzhou, anchoring off Changzhou. When this occurred, Chiang Kai-shek stated Captain Li Jielong had done so without his orders, and that the man was lying when he said he was working under Chiang Kai-shek's orders. Then suspicious phone calls began to emerge between Wang Jingwei's wife, Qian Bijin, and Chiang Kai-shek's wife, Qian Jieru. Alongside all of this, calls came in from Wampoa's political director asking if Chiang Kai-shek would be departing to Changzhou. But Chiang Kai-shek had no idea what was going on. It seemed clear to Chiang Kai-shek that Wang Jingwei was forming some kind of putsch in Guangzhou. 
Thus, in reaction to all of this, Chiang Kai-shek declared martial law on March the 20th, 1926, and cut off the communication network in Guangzhou. Chiang Kai-shek then took the NRA forces and began arresting communists, and he placed Wang Jingwei under house arrest. Wang Jingwei was also gravely sick at the time, and he eventually brokered an agreement with Chiang to simply go into a short self-exile by claiming he was on vacation abroad. Thus, Chiang Kai-shek had emerged the leader of the nationalist government in Guangzhou. Now, Chiang Kai-shek's first order of business was to enact the Great Northern Expedition that Dr. Sun Yat-sen had dreamed of for so long, but this will be covered in the next episode. What's important, however, to note is that Chiang Kai-shek's first moves upon taking power was to try and get another clique leader to defect to his side. Since the end of the Second Julie Feng Tian War, Sun Quanfeng had inherited Qi Xiaoyuan's forces, but he was now staring face to face with Jiang Zongjiang, with a battle line around Shanghai. Then the Julie clique warlord was approached by Chiang Kai-shek, who sought to bring him into the KMT fold. Sun Quanfeng had many reasons to go along with this. He loathed the Feng Tian clique, and they were threatening his borders. However, he refused Chiang Kai-shek's offer, and he even killed the KMT emissaries. In response, Chiang Kai-shek killed Sun's emissaries, and a bitter hatred emerged between the two men. No man threatens a messenger. Oh, I've chosen my words carefully. Perhaps you should have done the same. This is blasphemy. This is madness. Now going back to the situation in Manchuria, Guo Xiangling marched his division upon Zhang Zoulin's headquarters at Shenyang on November the 22nd. His siege was a complete surprise to the Feng Tian forces and initially quite successful. However, the Kwantung army rushed to the scene to protect Japanese interests and halt Guo's progress, causing a stalemate. Guo's entire plan was built upon the element of surprise and a quick seizure of authority to place Zhang Shiliang upon the Manchurian throne and it had all but failed. Within a month's time, Guo's forces were completely surrounded and annihilated. Guo and his wife were captured on December the 24th and executed on Christmas Day. Now, despite the fact Chiang Kai-shek had failed to win Sun Quanfeng over, Sun still wanted to hit the Feng Tian clique. Upon hearing the news of the mutiny going on in Manchuria, Sun launched his own attack in November of 1925. Sun's forces drove Zhang Songsheng's forces out of the Shanghai area. Sun would then expand his rule to include all of Jiangsu, Fujian, Zhejiang, Jiangxi, and Anhui, pushing the Feng Xian far north in the process. Sun and Guo were not alone in their war effort, as Feng Yixiang also took his Guomingjun forces and lashed out against the Feng Xian from the northwest. All this culminated into what is known as the Anti-Feng Xian War. However, when Guo Songling's siege failed, the Guomingjun began to hemorrhage troops, both from fighting and desertion, to the combined forces of Wu Peifu and Zhang Zoulin. It was impossible for the Guomingjun to hold off both Zhang and Wu, and by January, Feng Yusin was forced to resign as a warlord and he fled to the USSR. Japan played a crucial role, offering not just arms and advisors to the Feng Tian, but literally partook in the war using air and naval units. In March, the Japanese had blockaded Tianjin, and an Aijian warship bombarded the Daku forts to support the Feng Tian offensive. This resulted in the Guomingjun attacking the Japanese forces, which Japan treated as a violation of the Boxer Protocol. A few days later, Japanese envoys were in Beijing demanding Duan Tsirye dismantle the Daku Fort defenses that had shot at their ships. Then, a demonstration was orchestrated by Li Dajiao on March the 18th in front of the Tiananmen Gate. He demanded an end to the unequal treaties and to expel the foreign ambassadors responsible for said treaties. Soon, Li Dajiao began directing the protesters to march upon the Beiyang government's headquarters. 
Duantier freaked out, believing they would overthrow the government, and he sent the military police to disperse the protesters. This led to wide-scale violence, with 47 protesters being killed and over 200 people being wounded. Li Dajiao was himself wounded, and he was forced to flee to the Soviet embassy as the Beiyang government began to hunt him down. Both KMT and CCP members were hunted down after this event, which has become known as the March 18th Massacre. Now, during the anti-Fengtian War, the Guomingjun forces did seize Beijing and ousted Duan Xiedei. However, as Feng Yusen's forces were battered back, Jiang Sun, Jiang Shuliang, and Wu Peifu's forces took back Beijing soon after. When all these forces came to liberate Beijing, they also sacked the capital, causing so much chaos that it led to the collapse of the Beiyang government. Until 1928, the Beiyang government for all intents and purposes did not exist. Meanwhile, the Guomingjun forces tried to flee to Shanxi, but the Shanxi warlord, Yan Xishan, was maintaining a neutrality policy and thus attacked any forces that tried to invade his territory. Awkwardly enough, Wu Peifu and Zhang Zoulin found themselves yet again together in Beijing, forced to create a new government. Wu Peifu wanted to back Tao Kuan as president, but Zhang Zoulin was hinting at restoring the last Manchu emperor, Puyi, back to the throne. They resorted to forming some short-lived and quite powerless cabinets. But with Wu Peifu's Juli clique still in shambles, there was really nothing he could do as Zhang Zoulin made himself a dictator. The Anti-Fengtian War, or Third Juli Fengtian War as it is known, was over and yet again it was the Fengtian clique who had won the day. However, the war had a profound effect on destabilizing the balance of power. You see, Wu Peifu and Sun Quanfeng both mobilized their armies to fight wars further north. This left both of their respected regions weaker in the south. Also, Wu Peifu's army was coming into this war quite weak, and even weaker at its end. Sun Quanfeng won his battles, but this also weakened his military. The Guomingjun had been shattered, but they were not defeated, and they were now aligned with a key player who was yet to make his move, Chiang Kai-shek and the Nationalists in the south. With the southern door wide open, it was finally time for Chiang Kai-shek to unleash the northern expedition. During the chaos that was the Anti-Fangtian War, the Nationalist government in the south was brewing a new war that would change China forever. The war effort weakened the southern defenses of Wu Peifu and Sun Quanfang, leaving the door open for a northern expedition. The KMT and CCP had formed the first united front as an alliance against the various warlords trying to take control of China. When Dr. Sun Yat-sen died, this led to a power vacuum to which Chiang Kai-shek emerged victorious. However, a push was attempted by some of the communist sympathizers within the Nationalist Army, and this led Chiang Kai-shek to declare martial law on March 20th of 1926. Then he ordered a bloodless purge of many communists within the Nationalist Army. However, Chiang Kai-shek still required the backing of the USSR for the planned northern expedition, and thus he had to make a compromise. He only purged hardline right-wingers and allowed communists to operate within the KMT but not at high-level positions. Stalin and the CCP were okay with this, but the coalition was certainly fragile. In 1926, Chiang Kai-shek faced three major warlords hostile to his KMT government in Guangzhou. There was Wu Peifu's Juli clique, controlling Hunan, Henan, and Hubei. There was Sun Quanfang, who controlled Jiangxi, Anhui, Zhejiang, and Fujian. And lastly, there was still the most powerful warlord, Jiang Zoulin, who held the Beiyang government, alongside Shandong province, parts of Juli, and all of Manchuria. 
The initial strategy of the KMT was to hit the Julie clique, who were weakened after being at war with the Fangxian for so long. The strategy would be to first focus on the larger force of Wu Paifu while appeasing Sun Quanfeng and simply ignoring Zhang Lin in the north. Chiang Kai-shek got Sun Quanfeng to state privately to him he would remain neutral if the nationalists decided to hit Wu Paifu, and the warlord controlling Hunan province agreed to allow quick passage through his domain to the nationalists and would even join them if they defeated Wu Paifu. The nationalists had an army of 100,000 men, within eight corps, 65,000 rifles, of which 20,000 were obsolete in 1926. It was to be a military gamble. The Fangtian clique had just defeated the Guomingjin, and they were stronger than ever. Now Wu Peifu's forces were still dealing with the battered Guomingjin in the northwest, leaving the capital of Wuchang and its southern flanks exposed. The KMT quickly lashed out from their base in Guangdong to hit Hunan province, capturing Changsha by July the 11th. When the KMT began their war, the forces of Wu Peifu were still locked in battle with the Guomingjun, along the Nanko Pass near Beijing. The Guomingjun had been quasi-allies to the KMT, but at this point, they knew it was in their best interest to simply join them. Sun Quanfang's forces were battered from pushing the Fangtian north, and he chose not to act when he saw the KMT begin to march into Wu Paifu's territory. Zhang Zoulin, however, was very distressed by the situation, and he offered assistance to Wu Paifu, but Wu Paifu refused it, fearing it was all a ploy to simply have the Fangtian swallow up all of his remaining territory, which, in all honesty, it probably was the case. Chiang Kai-shek held a military conference in Changsha on August the 11th, where he decided they would strike at Wu Paifu's stronghold of Wuchang, while bypassing Sun Quanfeng's stronghold of Nanchang. The idea was simple, take out Wu Paifu's capital before he had a chance to rush back south. Chiang Kai-shek's NRA moved in two large groups, one going through Jiangxi towards Nanjing, and the other through Fujian. Wu Paifu's forces in the south were outnumbered. Their morale was horrible, leading upon waves upon waves of defeats and defections as the NRA forces moved quickly using railways. Wu Peifu managed to deploy units south of Wuchang by August, but his counterattacks were being shattered by the NRA's artillery. Chiang Kai-shek took the Yangtze port city of Yuezhou on August the 22nd, making Hunan completely under KMT dominance and opening the way to Wuchang via the Beijing-Guangzhou railway. The NRA soon pushed Wu Paifu's men northward from the Yangtze region. In response, Wu Paifu's men broke dikes along the way to slow down the NRA's advance. But by August the 28th, Li Zongren, leading the NRA's 7th Army, seized Xianning, just 75 kilometers south of Wuchang. Wu Paifu himself made it to Wuchang in late August, gathering as much forces as he could to try and stage a defense around Hushunxiao Bridge. It was around Wuchang where the NRA first encountered soldiers of good caliber and garrison commanders who did not simply turn coat. On August the 29th, Wu Peifu led a counterattack against the NRA, but this compromised his defensive lines, and by noon of August the 30th, his forces were in full retreat back towards Wuchang. In just a few weeks of battle, Wu Peifu had lost 8,000 troops, with at least 5,000 surrendering over to the NRA. Meanwhile, the NRA was receiving enormous amounts of defectors, and more importantly, a ton of war materials. By September the 2nd, the NRA was beginning to encircle Wuchang, and a large number of Wu Peifu's forces began fleeing north to Henan province. Wu Peifu and his most loyal men would hold out in Wuchang for over a month. 
Wuchang was a walled city with ample defensive works and would hold out against several NRA attacks. But in his desperation, Wu Peifu began begging Sun Quanfang for help. But Sun's armies would only mobilize late into August, and it gave the NRA plenty of time to reorganize and prepare for them. The remainder of Wu Peifu's army would disintegrate in the following months, as Wu Peifu had lost face completely. With Wu Peifu's fortress of Wuchang holding firm, the NRA decided to hit nearby places like Hanyang, easily occupying it by September the 6th. However, while the NRA loosened their grip somewhat on Wuchang, Wu Peifu managed to escape with many of his men going north. Chiang Kai-shek then decided to turn his gaze upon Jiangxi province, where Sun Quanfang had been mobilizing his army to help Wu Peifu. Chiang Kai-shek stole the initiative and he attacked Sun Quanfang before he could do the same. On September the 4th, even while Wu Chang was still being besieged, the NRA began invading Jiangxi province. Sun's troops recovered from the offensive, and the war raged back and forth across Jiangxi province. By September the 19th, the NRA, aided by local sympathizers, captured Jiangxi's capital city of Nanchang. This was largely thanks to the defection of one of Sun's generals, General Lai Shi Huang. Over 20,000 NRA and 40,000 of Sun's forces died in the initial onslaught. Despite seizing the capital, Sun had retreated to Nanjing and rallied troops to reconquer his lost territories. By October the 10th, Wu Peifu's remaining forces at Wuchang surrendered, and with that the NRA controlled all of Hubei province. This was all soon met with another large defection, Sun's subordinate warlord of Zhejiang province, Xia Chao. Xia Chao was fed up with Sun's treatment of Zhejiang, and on October the 16th he joined the KMT and declared Zhejiang independent. Chiang Kai-shek was a native of Zhejiang province and he had managed to sweet-talk Xia Chao over. Xia Chao launched an attack on Shanghai, prompting Sun to crash down hard with his armies upon Zhejiang. By October the 23rd, Sun's forces had crushed Xia Chao, and he had the traitor executed along many of his troops and thousands of civilians were massacred. Despite Sun successfully quelling the Zhejiang problem, the diversion of his forces allowed the NRA to push across the Yangtze to firmly retake Nanchang, and then they seized Fujian. With Wu Peifu beaten fleeing north, Sun had no one else to turn to for help, other than his enemy, Zhang Zoulin. Jim is my enemy, but it turns out that Jim is also his own worst enemy. And the enemy of my enemy is my friend. So Jim is actually my friend. Sun fled to Tietjin to meet with the warlord of Shandong province, his bitter rival, the dog meat general, Zhang Zongchang and Zhang Zoulin of Manchuria. They both agreed to help Sun, deeming the NRA a threat, but they also demanded he pay them for the help. Zhang Zoulin announced the creation of the National Pacification Army, the NPA, calling for all the other warlords to contribute forces to resist the red disease coming from the south. The NPA would begin as a coalition of over 500,000 men, a formidable force. 60,000 troops from Shandong marched into Sun's territory of Anhui by November the 24th with Zhang Zoulin as commander-in-chief and Zhang Zongchang and Sun Quanfang as deputy commanders. Zhejiang was soon given autonomous status by the Guangzhou government and in response, Sun rallied his troops along the Zhejiang border with the NPA protecting his rear. Sun then charged into Zhejiang reclaiming most of his province. By January the 10th, the Zhejiang nationalist allies were withdrawing to Zhejiang. As Sun retook his territory, he unleashed brutality upon the populace, killing civilians suspected of being in league with the KMT and displaying severed heads on spikes in public places. 
The coalition was extremely unpopular with the populace of Sun's controlled territories and treated as invaders. To aid their Zhejiang allies, the NRA general He Yingqin led the NRA's first army to march across Guangdong's borders into Fujian, where he and his troops were welcomed by the local populace. The plan was quite simple. He Yingqin was trying to get between Sun's advancing forces, moving up the coast to the capital of Fuzhou. This led to even more of Sun's troops defecting to the NRA. By late October, Sun's troops were retreating from Fujian and Jiangxi, and by early November, the NRA had captured the Yangtze ports of Jiaojiang, Hukou, and they retook Nancheng. By early December, Fuzhou was taken unopposed, and on the 11th, Sun's commander of Zhejiang, Zhou Fengqi, defected to the NRA. With this came a cascade of defections, and all of Zhejiang rejoined the nationalists. Alongside the massive number of defectors also came huge sums of abandoned war materials, which the NRA desperately required. The fighting was bitter, and taking Nanchang alone would cost the NRA 20,000 casualties. The Zhejiang Nationalist Allies and the NRA forces merged and made a counteroffensive led by Bai Changxi on January the 20th. By the 29th, the offensive reached Yanxi and Jinhua, where Sun received a catastrophic defeat. The NRA and Zhejiang followed this up with a pincer attack against the capital of Hangzhou, leading to many of Sun's troops routing, retreating north and burning and pillaging as they did so. With Sun's forces in disarray, the commander defending the Hangzhou area, Meng Chao Yihui, took 20,000 of his forces and simply abandoned Hangzhou by fleeing on train to Jiangsu province. By February the 23rd, Zhejiang rid itself of Sun's control and was firmly in the hands of the nationalists. Within six months of the campaign, the NRA had expanded across seven provinces, taking control of over 170 million people, and alongside recruitment and defections had grown from 100,000 troops in 1922 to 700,000 troops in 1927. In the face of the defeats, Sun Chuanfeng fled to Nanjing and began to beg for help from his Fangtian allies. I've fallen, and I can't get up! Jiang Zoulin responded by reinforcing Sun in Anhui and Jiangsu provinces, while also sending his forces to try and rescue Wu Peifu in Henan. Wu Peifu is utterly defeated and now trapped in Hunan province. Sun Chuanfang was forced to flee Nanjing as Chiang Kai-shek and the NRA were about to take control of the secondary capital of China. Now it was up to Jiang Zoulin to try and help his allies stop the northern expedition. Two major NPA armies emerged, the Shandong army led by Chang Zongchang, and another led by the Juli clique general, Chu Yupu. Damn, boy! Damn, boy! He's thick! Boy! That's a thick-ass boy! Both armies crossed the Yangtze River in February of 1927 to help Sun defend Nanjing and Shanghai. Following their major victories in Zhejiang, the NRA launched an offensive against both Shanghai and Nanjing. Bai Chongxi and He Yingxin led an NRA force based in Hangzhou to launch a two-pronged attack. He's forces would march towards Changzhou, while Bai's forces would advance straight towards Shanghai. Both forces' goal was to sever the Shanghai-Nanjing Railway, Sun's last lifeline. Meanwhile, another NRA force led by Cheng Qian would strike at Nanjing going through the Anhui province. Many of Sun's troops in southern Anhui simply defected, allowing the NRA quick passage. 
Now Sun's men and Jiang Songchang were forced to pull back to Shanghai, awaiting the onslaught from Bai's army. Bei's forces quickly seized the railway link with Shanghai, while Sun was confronted with a brand new enemy. His navy had formed a mutiny, and there was a communist uprising going on in Shanghai. Inhabitants of the foreign concessions of Shanghai were in wild alarm. European and American troops with their warships stood ready for what was expected to be a terrible sacking of the city. Bei's army fought a vicious battle at Songjiang, just outside the city, and then marched into Shanghai on March the 22nd. The foreign community of Shanghai was shocked by the NRA's treatment of them and their concessions. After just a day or so, the foreign community was relieved. They began to congratulate Chiang Kai-shek for having a well-disciplined army. But congratulations swiftly changed right back to panic when two days after taking Shanghai, the NRA took Nanjing, and the situation there was quite different. He Yingqin advanced from the southeast, while Cheng Tian came from the southwest. Zhang Songchang did not like the situation at all in Nanjing, and he promptly took his Shandong army the hell out of there by March the 23rd, leaving the city utterly helpless. Cheng Tian's force was the first to arrive on March the 24th, entering the Grand City with zero resistance. Now, why it all happened is still argued to this very day. Regardless, looting and lynching began on the 24th. Many argue it was Jiang Zongchang who had ordered his men to loot the city before leaving, and some of these units simply deserted him, and they were still looting while the NRA showed up. Regardless, as soon as the NRA entered the city, mobs were attacking foreign property and roughing up foreigners. Six foreigners were killed, and many foreign women were raped. These murders prompted the American, Italian, Japanese, and British gunboats along the nearby river to gather all the foreigners they could and begin a bombardment. The bombardment devastated the city and killed around 40 people. Chiang Kai-shek himself was on his way downriver by boat from Jiaojiang while this was all going down. He would only arrive some days later, and by that time foreigners had already been evacuated to Shanghai. Chiang Kai-shek was livid, and then he found out from his officers that it was claimed Chiang Zongchang's men had been the ones who had done the deeds while fleeing north. He Yingqin's force had arrived on March the 25th, and by the 26th, alongside Chiang's men, they were able to stop all of the violence. Now, a lot of the foreign community had reports from missionaries within Nanjing that they heard many of the perpetrators were speaking with a Cantonese dialect. This prompted Chiang Kai-shek to tell the foreigners he would personally investigate the matter and punish all those responsible. At the same time, Chiang Kai-shek knew the communists within their alliance would not allow him to take Beijing for the KMT alone. Thus, Chiang Kai-shek sought to use the CCP to maintain Soviet support for as long as possible to make sure the northern expedition was a success, but ultimately they would have to face another before the last chess piece fell. And so it was here Chiang Kai-shek felt the time was ripe to make his move. Chiang Zongchang's forces were blamed for starting the attacks on the foreigners, but the NRA was also accused of participating, specifically their communist members. Chiang Kai-shek suspected the CCP and their Soviet advisors had used anti-imperialist and anti-foreign sentiment to instigate the Nanjing incident, and they were yet again conspiring to grab power. Thus, Chiang Kai-shek planned to use this incident as a reason to violently purge the communists from the KMT in Shanghai. 
Chiang Kai-shek accused communist statesman Lin Bochu of planning the Nanjing incident and he accused the CCP of trying to turn international opinion against the KMT. While all this was happening, the nationalists had moved their Guangzhou government over to Wuhan. But the new government there began to distance themselves from Chiang Kai-shek. In the meantime, the NRA continued its march north to hit the capital of Anhui province, Hefei, while also invading Jiangsu province. The Nanjing incident, however, began to hinder their advance to a grinding halt. This allowed the Fengtian forces to bolster up Sun Chanfang's army before it completely collapsed, and soon, they reorganized themselves to launch a counteroffensive in early April. All of the bickering between the KMT and the CCP was causing the NRA to slowly be driven back 100 miles south of the Yangtze River area by April the 11th. The NRA had finally lost its momentum. The leftists in the national government and the CCP voted Chiang Kai-shek out of the office of Chairman and Generalissimo and appointed Wang Jingwei as the new chairman. Look at little Goblin Jr. Wanna cry? It was expected now that Chiang Kai-shek would simply go to the front lines to lead the troops as a general. Chiang Kai-shek had something else completely in mind. He rushed over to Shanghai under the guise he was tracking down some rioters who had escaped the Nanjing incident. And in Shanghai, Chiang Kai-shek met with Chiang Qingqiang, the leading businessman of Shanghai. Chiang Kai-shek formed a secret agreement with him and other businessmen to acquire 3 million Shanghai dollars to make up for what would be lost in Soviet support now. Then he personally greeted Wang Jingwei when he showed up to Shanghai offering a power-sharing deal with him. Wang Jingwei said politely that he would consider the deal, but quickly made his way over to the nationalist government in Wuhan to convene with the leadership. Before Wang Jingwei had made his way, he spoke with the leader of the CCP. Chen Tixiu, issuing a joint declaration reaffirming the cooperation between the KMT and the CCP. Wang Jingwei then went to Wuhan where he told the government what Chiang Kai-shek had offered him. But on April the 10th, the government decided to turn its limited forces that they had in Wuhan to try and make an offensive north against Beijing on their own. Meanwhile, Chiang Kai-shek unleashed a violent purge of communists at Shanghai. At this time, he was also strapped for men. So in order to find more men, he went to two secret societies that had existed in China for centuries. Chiang Kai-shek declared martial law in Shanghai and issued a proclamation denouncing the Wuhan Nationalist government's policy of working alongside the CCP. Then he gave secret orders to all the nationalist-held provinces under his influence to purge the communists from the KMT. Think Execute Order 66. Beginning on April the 12th, Chiang Kai-shek's gang members struck out at Nanxu, Pudong, and Jiabai. He also ordered the 26th Army to disarm the worker militias to limit resistance. Trade unions were closed, and thousands of students and workers began to protest his crackdown. The soldiers opened fire upon the protesters, killing many, and soon Chiang Kai-shek dissolved the provisional government of Shanghai all the labor unions and any other organizations which might have ties to the CCP. Thousands possibly died. It's hard to know exact numbers. Some sources indicate 1,000 communists were arrested with a few hundred being killed and thousands gone missing. Other sources put the death toll as high as 5,000 to 10,000. Trials were just a summary, if there were any at all. Beheadings took place in streets, 
It was a real bloody affair, and it is known today as the Shanghai Massacre. Chiang Kai-shek followed the purge up by sending the Wuhan government a list of his demands. All communist propaganda was to stop. NRA soldiers must now only be controlled by regular officers, and that all political agents traveling within the NRA were to be stripped of all of their authority. Basically, it was Chiang Kai-shek telling them he was taking everything. The Wuhan government responded by rejecting all of his demands and publicly voted Chiang Kai-shek out of office again. But this time completely. He was to have no military command, no government posts, or anything within the KMT. They even placed a bounty over his head. So Chiang Kai-shek set up a new government in Nanjing to rival the Wuhan one. Feng Yusheng was a bit shocked by the situation. He didn't know how to proceed. He knew the right course of action was to stick to the northern expedition. But which government would he follow? Wuhan or Nanjing? Both governments were carrying on with their expeditions, but separately. In May, Feng took to Guomingjun, leaving his base in Shangxi to hit Liuyang in Hunan province. The Wuhan government launched a campaign against Hunan province as well, led by their commander-in-chief, Tang Xunzhi. Aided by the defection of the remnants of Wu Paifu's army, Tang Xuzhi was able to advance and face off against an army led by Jiang Xiyang, pushing them as far back as the river area of Yanchang. Meanwhile, Chiang Kai-shek sent the NRA's first and six armies across the Yangtze into Anhui province. By May of the 16th, Li Zongren was taking the NRA's 7th army towards Hefei. Then Chiang Kai-shek unleashed a four-pronged assault through Jiangsu province aimed at Jiang Songchang's Shangdong province. Hu Yingqin led the NRA's first army to capture Jianjiang and then Haizhou. Li Zongren then took Suzhou and then the Guomingjun took Liaoyang. Jiang Songchang was forced to withdraw his forces back into Shangdong province and Jiang Xuliang withdrew his troops north of the Yellow River. Feng Yixiang chased Jiang Xiliang's forces furthermore from Liaoyang towards Zhengzhou. By June the 2nd, the NRA seized the railway junction at Xuzhou. Now the NRA and Guomingjun controlled both the Beijing, Hankou, and Longhai railways. After his successful campaign, Feng Yixiang met with Wang Jingwei and Tang Shengzhi on June the 10th at Zhengzhou. Then he traveled to Shizhou to speak to Chiang Kai-shek on June the 19th. The very next day, Feng made his choice. He decided to align the Guomingjun with Chiang Kai-shek and to purge his forces of the communists. This immediately crippled the Wuhan government's operations to push north, leaving Tang to return to Wuhan with his army. With Feng in the fold, Chiang Kai-shek prepared his forces to make a push into Shandong province, when suddenly a new player entered the mix the Empire of Japan. In June, the Guangdong army had deployed around Qingdao to protect Japanese citizens. Meanwhile, Wu Paifu took the opportunity to retreat with what remained of his army into Sichuan province, where he soon announced his retirement. It seems the jig was up for the once great military mastermind. Tang Shengju, once in Wuhan, decided the only proper course of action going forward was to mobilize against the rival Nanjing government of Chiang Kai-shek. Unfortunately for Tang Shongju, Chiang Kai-shek was quite aware of this threat, and he recalled all of his forces back from Shandong province, and he took them directly between Wuhan and Nanjing. Meanwhile, the NPA launched their own offensive against Chiang Kai-shek, beginning in early June to reconquer all of their lost territory. 
By July the 24th, the NPA got their hands back on Chuzhou and its vital railway junction. Now at this point, it had been over seven weeks and the nationalists were in a lot of trouble. The Wuhan government was fighting itself over the question of strategy. Some wanted to push on towards Beijing, others against Nanjing. The Soviets eventually got into the mix. Joseph Stalin argued that the CCP had not become strong enough to be able to defy the KMT yet. The revolution needed to be put on hold because fighting the KMT and the NPA at the same time was simply impossible. He advised the CCP to covertly begin purging the KMT hardliners, and to do this gradually, especially any unreliable generals. They needed to be liquidated, and if anyone knew about liquidating, it was Stalin. Anyone who maintained contact with Chiang Kai-shek was to be punished. Wang Jingwei heard the news about the Soviet and CCP's plans, and he was shocked to say the least. Wang Jingwei said his KMT faction would never go along with such disgusting plans. What the fuck is this piece of shit? He then broke with the Soviets and reconciled with Chiang Kai-shek. Soon, the Wuhan government completely purged itself of all of its communists. All of the Soviet advisors were expelled, and the Wuhan government formed a new alliance with the Nanjing government. The new government pointed out that unity could not be achieved as long as Chiang Kai-shek was commander-in-chief, which Chiang Kai-shek agreed upon himself. Thus, on August the 12th, the government asked Chiang Kai-shek to voluntarily submit to a demotion, but he promptly resigned altogether. He simply walked out of a meeting, took a 200-strong bodyguard, and he took up quarters in a Buddhist monastery on a high mountain. Chiang Kai-shek had stepped down as Generalissimo. The first united front had collapsed, and a new unified nationalist government was being held by Wang Jingwei. They ask you how you are, you just have to say that you're fine, when you're not really fine, but you just can't get into it because they would never understand. Will the nationalists be able to defeat the NPA and reunify China? As Wang Jingwei reorganized the NRA and Chiang Kai-shek left the scene, Sun Quanfang's army was bombarding Nanjing from across the Yangtze. Sensing the opportunity was ripe while the enemy was reorganizing, Sun Quanfang sent his forces to recapture Shanghai, but this was not what Zhang Zoulin wanted. By late August, the NPA began to land forces across the Yangtze at Longtan near Nanjing. On August the 26th, Sun's men rallied at Longtan Station along the Shanghai-Nanjing Railway. Li Zongren's NRA 7th Army managed to drive the NPA off the railway line, but only briefly as more and more of Sun's forces arrived at the scene, including some white Russian mercenary units. Soon the contact between Nanjing and Shanghai was severed, absolutely shattering the NRA's commanders. All the leadership in the NRA began calling for unity in the face of Sun's advancing army. Feng Yusheng leapt into action by sending the Guomingjun to attack Shandong province on August the 28th, while Wu Han sent its forces north to flank Sun and He Yingxin hit Sun from Shanghai. Sun's army was surrounded and forced to abandon the Longtan railway station on August the 30th. In desperation, Sun rallied 40,000 troops to try and launch a counteroffensive the next day, only to be absolutely crushed in a terrible battle leading him to lose 10,000 men. While more of his men began surrendering, Sun was able to escape to Shandong province with the remnants of his army. 
With the amazing victory in hand, the Wuhan government officially dissolved and a new joint government was established in Nanjing under the leadership of the Guangxi clique generals. Wang Jingwei and Tang Xiangjie refused to join the new government. In fact, Tang Xiangjie went ahead becoming a formidable independent warlord who controlled Hunan, Jiangxi, Hubei, and parts of Anhui province. Then the warlord of Shanxi, Yan Xishan, finally tossed his hat into the ring, joining the new Nanjing government, adding 100 fresh troops to the NRA. Yan Xishan came into the scene with a bang, immediately commencing offensives against the NPA. In the bloody mayhem, the Shanxi and Fengtian clique's forces clashed, but neither side managed to gain the upper hand over the other. Yan Xishan's forces withstood a massive siege at Zhouzhou, and then suffered a terrible defeat at Baoding on October the 15th. Meanwhile, the NRA began to hit Tang's forces in October and November. Tang was defeated and forced to leave in exile for Japan. With Tang's rebellion out of the way, the push north resumed and the NRA managed to take Bengdu by November the 9th. Feng's Guomingjun also pushed on and recaptured Shuzhou. Now the NPA was yet again pushed into Shandong province. Yet despite all of this, without Chiang Kai-shek's bold tactics, many in the Nationalist government saw the Northern Expedition coming undone. While Chiang Kai-shek drank tea with the Songs in Kamakura, the situation back home was becoming dangerous. The remnants of the purged communists formed an army, and they had been deployed into Jiangxi province where they were marching upon Guangzhou. They began occupying a couple of towns, and they fought the NRA troops sporadically. While Chiang Kai-shek and his wife were relaxing, some of the southern warlords began to see their big chance to raise a bit of hell, and the northern expedition was becoming derailed. The people sought a strong man to rein everybody back in. They were calling for Chiang Kai-shek. The communists had been planning an uprising in Guangzhou ever since the Nanjing incident. The plan called for peasants and workers to act as auxiliaries while the CCP soldiers would fight to claim territory. Grand Secretary of Guangdong Province, Zhang Teilei, was heading the plan. The CCP took advantage of some in-house fighting between the KMT-aligned warlords Li Jixian and Zhang Fangkui within Guangdong Province. While the two warlords fought, the communists aligned peasants and workers and they began to take control over county seats and formed general strikes paralyzing Guangzhou. Li Jixin began to attack Zhang Fakui on November the 27th, capturing Guangzhou in a surprise attack. After this, Zhang moved his forces out of the city to resist countless counterattacks by Li. Once this was kicking off, a revolutionary military council appointed Ye Qing as commander-in-chief and Zhang Tailei as chairman. In early December, communist forces gathered in Guangdong with a core fighting force of around 2,000 armed workers and 1,200 soldiers. They would soon be joined by many others. On December the 11th, the CCP ordered around 20,000 communist soldiers and armed workers to organize a Red Guard to capture Guangzhou. They were insufficiently armed, only had 20,000 rifles, but nevertheless, they captured most of the city within mere hours using a surprise attack. And thus, soon the CCP began to establish its own new government base in Guangzhou. But the NRA sent 15,000 soldiers swiftly to quell the insurgency. Guangzhou saw battling between the two forces until five more NRA divisions showed up, causing heavy casualties upon the communist forces, and they were forced to leave. Losses were heavy on both sides, but the communists took the brunt, losing 5,700 men. 
While this was all occurring, Chiang Kai-shek was in Shanghai meeting Wang Jingwei. Wang Jingwei was under immense pressure from the public who wanted Chiang Kai-shek back, and there was also suspicion about Wang's involvement in the Guangzhou uprising. You see, Wang Jingwei had been based in Guangzhou after the Wuhan government disbanded, and many pointed fingers at him. In truth, Wang Jingwei came to see Chiang Kai-shek, admitting he was in over his head as chairman, and he conceded Chiang Kai-shek needed to return. I am sorry, my mentor. I have failed you. <laughs> they soon formed an agreement. Wang Jingwei would resign his post as chairman, and Chiang Kai-shek would return to office. Now, say my name. Big Daddy Chiang. You're goddamn right. A few weeks later, Wang Jingwei sailed for France in exile. Chiang Kai-shek's first order of business was to call for all diplomatic relations between China and the Soviet Union to end. Do me a favor, please. Get out of here. Get out of here, man! Shit, I'm saying! By January the 2nd, Chiang Kai-shek was formally requesting to return to Nanjing to resume both his offices, that of chairman and that of commander-in-chief of the Northern Expedition. On January the 4th, Chiang Kai-shek was yet again Generalissimo. Twice while en route to Nanjing, attempts were made to frustrate his journey. But when he finally reached Nanjing, he was met with ovation. Now until August, Chiang Kai-shek was to have dictatorial powers, and it was presumed the northern expedition would be completed by then. In early February, Chiang Kai-shek inspected the army at its most advanced point, which was Xuzhou by then. He began reorganizing the command, naming himself leader of the first group. He then formed four collective armies with He Yinxin as chief of staff. The first collective army was based in the Nanjing-Shanghai area. The second collective army was Feng Yusheng's Guomingjun. The third was Yuan Xishan's Shanxi forces. And the fourth was Li Zongren's Guangxi clique army. Chiang Kai-shek sent messages to all the commanders that there would never be again a repetition of the incidents that occurred against foreign residents because he had begun forming requests from foreign authorities to prevent them from selling arms to the NPA. Now, the NRA was a behemoth one million strong force made up of mostly ex-warlord armies. Before beginning the new offensive, Chiang Kai-shek tried to negotiate with the Japanese to prevent them from interfering in Shandong province again. He planned for a three-pronged attack. Feng Yusheng's second NRA army would approach from Hunan, Yuan Xixian's third NRA army would approach from Shanxi, and Chiang Kai-shek would lead the first NRA army to attack Shandong via the Tianjin-Pukou Railway. The first NRA army took Tongzhou with ease by April the 16th, and the second NRA army captured Jiaxing on the 15th, prompting Sun Quanfang to attempt a two-pronged counteroffensive against the first and second NRA armies. Sun's first prong managed to push the first NRA army back to the Langhai Railway, but his second prong failed to push back Feng's men, and by April the 21st, both NRA armies forced Sun to withdraw from Jinning to Jinan. Jinan was full of a very alarmed Guangdong army that had been deployed there coming from Qingdao. By April the 29th, Chiang Kai-shek's forces surrounded Jinan, but he ordered his men to not attempt any entry of the city and instead to try and pass along the railway. The Japanese forces, however, intentionally moved onto the railway to deter them. There were around 3,000 Guangdong soldiers in the city protecting 2,000 Japanese citizens, and they were looking for a fight. Allegedly, one NRA officer ignored orders and deliberately tried to get into the city, prompting the Japanese to open fire with their heavy artillery. 
For the next few days, the Chinese within the city suffered immensely, and soon 17 Chinese civilians were killed by the Japanese. It turns out the Kwangtung force led by General Fukuda Hikosuke had gone to Jinan without orders acting on his own. This was going to soon become an ongoing theme for the Kwangtung army, causing numerous incidents in the future. On May the 2nd, Chiang Kai-shek came to negotiate with General Fukuda, and they came to an agreement for a withdrawal with safety guarantees. The next morning, as the Japanese began to withdraw, suddenly a clash erupted with the Chinese forces. The Japanese attacked a Chinese wireless station, and thus the media press coverage would have to rely solely upon Japanese correspondents. Touch the stuff, not gonna touch the stuff, never touch the stuff. That was a lie. According to the report from General Fukuda, a group of NRA soldiers commanded by General He Yaosu, who they said was also responsible for the Nanjing incident, had broken into the office of the Japanese-owned Manchu Nippo newspaper and assaulted the owner at 9.30 a.m. A Japanese patrol led by Captain Kumikawa Yoshiharu rushed to the scene and attempted to stop the Chinese, causing a firefight. A report given to Chiang Kai-shek by his own men said a Chinese soldier was attempting to receive medical aid at a local Christian hospital when he was blocked by a Japanese soldier before they shot and killed him. Regardless of who started it, soon a full-scale conflict began amongst the NRA and the Kwangtung army. Furthermore, some Japanese state they found some of their civilians massacred and mutilated, and thus some of their men entered the negotiation headquarters with the NRA and promptly killed the Chinese diplomat, Taigoni Shi, alongside nine civilian staff and seven NRA soldiers. Thousands of Chinese civilians and soldiers were killed, alongside 16 Japanese civilians and 26 Guangdong soldiers. The Japanese seized control over Jinan, and Chiang Kai-shek was forced to apologize and appease them by May the 10th. From henceforth, Chiang Kai-shek knew Japan was his ultimate enemy, but China was in no position yet to fight back against such a terrific enemy. This incident infamously became known as the Jinan Incident. It was a pivotal event that would bring China and Japan closer to what would become the Second Sino-Japanese War. The NRA tried to avoid the Japanese after this incident, choosing to march north by going around Jinan. The NRA 1st Army seized Duzhou on May the 13th, the NRA 2nd Army besieged Baoding, and the NRA 3rd Army attacked Jiangjiakao. On May the 17th, Jiang Zoulin launched a massive 200,000-man counter-offensive, pushing the NRA 1st and 2nd Armies 30 miles south. But during this time, the NRA 3rd Army captured Jiang Xiaokao by May the 25th, bringing the war to Beijing's doorstep. It was at this point Japan cabled word both to Chiang Kai-shek and Jiang Zoulin, warning them if any fighting were to break out in Manchuria, it would result in Japanese intervention. Jiang Zoulin's position was terrible now. His forces were completely demoralized. The KMT had achieved a brilliant propaganda campaign, pinning the Jinan incident upon him, and all the vital railways were now in the hands of the NRA. After the 3rd NRA army took Jiang Zhaokao, they soon were pressing towards Nanko, forcing Jiang Zoulin to call it quits. He had to flee back to Manchuria. Under heavy pressure from the Japanese, he got aboard a train in Beijing on the night of June the 3rd of 1928 to head for Shenyang. And it is here a domino piece would eventually cause the outbreak of the Second Sino-Japanese War. The Japanese no longer trusted Chiang Zoulin. He proved to no longer be trustworthy at keeping the status quo, i.e. an independent Manchuria. 
which the Japanese sought. The Japanese had plans to seize Manchuria, and they could afford no intervention. Replacing Chang Tso-lin with a more cooperative puppet seemed to be the only solution to their problem. Chang Tso-lin's train was traveling along the Jingfeng Railway, which was under his control. However, just a few clicks east of Hangutuan Railway Station was the South Manchuria Railway Crossing, under the control of the Guangdong Army. One Colonel Daisuku Komoto, a junior officer of the Guangdong Army, without direct orders from Tokyo, decided to assassinate Zhang Zhou-lin. Alongside Doichi Sake and Captain Kanio Tomiya, a plan was executed using a bomb on the tracks. At 5.23 a.m. on June the 4th, Zhang Zhou-lin's train passed over a bridge along the tracks where a bomb exploded, killing Zhang Zhou-lin and several of his officials. While the plan went off without a hitch, the person they wanted to replace Zhang Tso Lin was General Yang Yuting, but he did not get the job. No, it turns out when you perform such an operation without telling your senior leadership, they're not always so quick to prepare the follow-up. Yeah, listen, uh, we fucked up. The Kwangtung leadership were shocked about the incident and they failed to mobilize a plan to replace Jiang Tso-lin with a man that had already been groomed for the position, General Yang Yuting. Instead, it was Jiang Tso-lin's son, Jiang Xiliang, who became leader of the Fangtian clique. Much to the surprise of Chen Kai-shek, the young Jiang Xiliang came to him stating they should form an alliance. Jiang Xiliang told Chen Kai-shek he had no issue with the Generalissimo becoming the leader of a unified China. Jiang Xiliang henceforth said he would control influence limited to Manchuria and Jiho province, and would tell all the other warlords under him to align themselves with Chiang Kai-shek. One warlord who did not want to join Chiang Kai-shek's side though was the dogmeat general Jiang Zongchang, who took his Shangdong Juli army alongside Zhu Yupu to carry on the fight. Jiang Zongchang still had around 70,000 soldiers, including three armored trains run by white Russian mercenaries and Japanese support was behind him. As Jiang Xiliang began his alliance with Chiang Kai-shek, Jiang Zhongchang declared war on the Fangtian clique. Or I'll walk out of this arena! No chance. Oh my. His forces launched out at Tangshan on August the 2nd, trying to invade Manchuria. After six days of battle, the army of Jiang Zhongchang was encircled by the combined might of the NRA and their new Fangtian allies. The majority of Jiang Zongchang's troops, including the White Russians, began to defect and desert. In the end, the NRA general, Bai Chongzi, gave the killing blow to Jiang Zongchang's army, capturing 20,000 of his men and almost managing to seize Jiang Zongchang himself. Jiang Zongchang fled for his life as the remnants of his army scattered and looted Shandong province, causing chaos. Jiang Zongchang fled to Dalian under Japanese protection where he tried to execute several plots to regain Shandong province but it was to no avail. He would go on to fight bitterly, and he caused a revolt, but it was easily suppressed. In the end, 
Zhang Songchang would flee to Japan and later in life would be assassinated by the nephew of an officer he had executed while leading his horses. It is suspected Feng Yuseng might have been involved in the murder. And thus ends Dog Meat General. All we are is dust in the wind. You're my boy, Blue! On December the 29th of 1928, Jiang Shuyang officially declared his allegiance to the nationalist government of Nanjing, marking the formal end of the Northern Expedition and the reunification of China. The war against the warlords was quasi over, but the war against Japan was just about to begin. Hey everyone, I just wanted to let you know I now have a Patreon account found at www.patreon.com slash the Pacific War Channel. Over there, you can find exclusive Patreon episodes and podcasts based on suggestions from patrons, and other benefits like early access to all of my content, live hangouts, your name in the end credits, and much, much more. So please go check it out.